I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast brought to you by three curious amateurs in an internet-powered balloon. This is a podcast dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, and I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Dublin, Ireland. And today we'll be talking about Gibraltar, a small piece of land located at the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, at the entrance to the Mediterranean. Gibraltar shares its only border with Spain to the north, and this tiny territory is dominated by the famous Rock of Gibraltar, a sheer limestone promontory that rises 425 meters, or 1,400 feet, to overshadow the small city beneath. It's one of the few places in the world where you can see three countries, Gibraltar, Spain, and Morocco, and two continents, Europe and Africa, at the same time. And even with a population of around 30,000, it's one of the most densely populated places on the planet. Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about the early history of Gibraltar? Sure thing. Um, so Gibraltar's history goes all the way back to different species. So Neanderthals lived here till about 25,000 years ago, which means this may have been one of the last places that they lived. Um, they were, of course, a rival species to our species, and uh, of human, um, and they died out. We thought earlier until they discovered remnants uh, and fossils of them in Gibraltar dated to about 25,000 years ago with, with uh, cave art and so on. Uh, and at the time they lived there, this would have been like a lush savanna kind of region with lots of food. And as climate changed after the Ice Age, that uh, the climate changed for them and they eventually died out. Um, the classical people called Gibraltar one of the pillars of Hercules, which were these two mythical pillars either side of the entrance of the Mediterranean one in Europe and one in Africa. And their legend said that Hercules, to accomplish his 10th labour, had to slice the land in half to escape from the Mediterranean Sea and go on to um, succeed in one of his great labours. Gibraltar had been occupied by Phoenicians, by Romans, by Carthaginians, by Vandals and Visigoths. But uh, it first really comes to major prominence when it was invaded by the Moors, in 722, when a, a, a general called Tariq from the Umayyad Caliphate in Morocco led an army into Spain via Gibraltar. And in fact, its name, Gibraltar, comes from the Arabic Jabal Tariq, meaning Tariq's mountain, and commemorates that important event. And the Moors ruled Spain for the following 700 years. Uh, Gibraltar, after the, the Muslims were expelled from Spain, becomes a Spanish colony. It had a city um, and was uh, moderately important, very defensible and very distinctive. But it really comes to its prominence during the War of Spanish Succession, which um, is a, a really important moment in, in Gibraltar's more modern history. So the War of Spanish Succession, as Joe just mentioned, Mark, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on that? Like what, 
what is the conflict and like who who were the belligerents? So the War of Spanish Succession was uh, a war basically to decide who would be the next king of Spain. The previous king had no uh, no sons, so a lot of countries around saw an opportunity. Uh, and there was a pretty natural divide between uh, Catholic countries and Protestant countries at that time. And on one side, you had the French, who were pushing their own candidate for the, the Spanish crown. And on the other side, you had the, uh, the British and I think uh, some smaller uh, regional, I think maybe Bavaria, I think maybe the Dutch also were involved. So you had a, a clear divide and it was a, a war largely fought around uh, uh, Europe generally in a, a bunch of uh, smaller, smaller battles. Um, the English and the Dutch were able to capture Gibraltar. Uh, from the Spanish. Gibraltar being a, a huge rock, you would expect might, might be quite easy to defend, uh, but they were able to take it in, in a mere two, three days. Uh, and then they, they held on to it for the time being, but formally the territory actually passed to British uh, control in, I think, 1714. Uh, the war itself lasted for approximately 13 years, and it was uh, via the Treaty of Utrecht uh, that it was actually passed to British hands. So the, the British decided to get out of the war, and in return for their removing themselves from the conflict, they were given Gibraltar and also the island of Menorca, which they didn't keep for as long. But for the following 300 years since the Treaty of Utrecht was signed, Gibraltar's remain in British hands. So it's it's been this strange little piece of Britishness in somewhere you would assume to be Spanish ever since that point. Uh, with the Spanish government, successive Spanish governments have, have claimed that it should be theirs, but this treaty is pretty ironclad. It says the King of Spain recounts, uh, recounts his ownership to the Rock of Gibraltar forever. Uh, it's very, very straightforward treaty as treaties go. Um. When the British took over, most of the locals left, which is interesting. So about 7,000 people marched up the road from Gibraltar to the new city of San Roque, expecting to only be in a brief exile. And in fact, the, the, the coat of arms of San Roque still proclaims them as the most loyal subjects of the city of Gibraltar in San Roque. So they, they were quite mistreated by the English occupying force. Um, particularly in terms of religion, where, where Catholic places of worship were desecrated by the, the, the British forces. So in the end, only about 70 civilians were left in Gibraltar when the, the, the British occupied it. And um, from there, it became quite a, a cosmopolitan city with, with traders from Genoa, with people from Morocco, people from all over. Um, well, as we mentioned at the beginning, Joe, it's, it's, uh, I suppose it's, it's sort of at a meeting point of a lot of different cultures and uh, is uh, as you mentioned has become like a sort of a melting pot for Africans and Southern Europeans and uh, British. Yeah, and and basically anyone who whose livelihood is is the sea. And a, an important feature of the treaty was that the British were required to allow Catholics to practice their religion because this was not long after the Reformation and and Britain was a Protestant country. But they were also required to remove the Jews and the Muslims from the region, which they were much more half-hearted about. So. To this day, there's a small Jewish population, and some Jewish traditions have been kept alive there that were that died out in the rest of Sp the Iberian mainland uh, during the Spanish Inquisition. So, in the 1770s, Gibraltar became tied up in the American War of Independence. And it's 
it's thought that Spain got involved in that war largely to try and seize Gibraltar back from the British, who were, of course, distracted fighting the Americans. So the Spanish come in on, on the American side. Um, and it, it, as with all wars in that era, it was quite confusing. The aims of people were very manifold and lots of people died in pitch battles uh, as a result of them. But it's from this era that one of one of my favourite characters in Gibraltarian history arises, a, a man called Charles O'Hara. I think you can tell us a little bit more about Charles O'Hara, can you, Mark? Yes, Charlie the Lad O'Hara. Um, so... When we when we discovered Charles O'Hara, we were like a little excited because we thought we had a you know an Irish connection on this. Uh, not not so. Not so. Uh, yeah, illegitimate son of a Portuguese maid who adopted an Irish accent uh, and just kind of carried on as if he had been raised in Ireland. Um, not not a very good soldier, I think we'd have to say. Surrendered to Washington and to Napoleon at various points in his life. He's, he's known as the only uh, soldier to have had that honour to surrender to both. Uh, I think you found a reference to him as the cock of the rock. That was... Uh, the, the old cock of the rock. The yeah. old cock of the rock. Yeah, Charlie O'Hara. So, so I'd, I'd have to disagree with you, Mark. I, I personally think if you're a general who surrenders to only Washington and Napoleon... <laughs> in the 1770s you know that it's your third best general in the world arguably you just got unlucky but we will have to agree to differ uh, i think it's a pretty cool resume filler to say surrendered to george washington and napoleon bonaparte and he was given in respect of his um his questionable military credentials he was given the governorship of gibraltar which is why he comes into the story in the 1790s um and as you said, the, the old cock of the rock was described as one, by one of his peers as being the most perfect specimen I have ever seen of the uh, of the soldier and courtier of the last age. So this kind of uh, somewhat Irish-British general born in Portugal, um, dressed like he was from the early 1700s and was very dapper and uh, quite, quite a character by all accounts. Just on, on his uh, proclivities for surrendering, he also surrendered a lot of his money to people he was gambling with uh, and eventually was <laughs> hounded out of several countries and had to turn to none other than uh, Cornwallis, uh, whose uh, father was actually also a governor of uh, Gibraltar at one point. But uh, General Cornwallis uh, had to help him with his gambling debts in, in later years. And he was essentially the, the general who, who lost America for yeah. Britain. yeah. Is Cornwallis, so you know that lots of it wasn't a good military period for for those guys. Friends in failure, um, I would call them. Friends in failure. <laughs> and one of his his biggest contributions to Gibraltar infrastructurally in his time as governor was was uh, O'Hara's Fort, which was built atop the eastern side of the rock, um, and it acquired the name O'Hara's Folly because it was designed to be tall enough to see the neighbouring Spanish city of Cadiz in Andalusia. But it couldn't. Did did he fail? So when Joe? they finished building it, he failed. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> when they finished building it, um, they went to the top and couldn't see what they were hoping to see. So the 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 tower was largely useless, and it was eventually destroyed much later in a kind of a shooting competition by the military forces in Gibraltar, where the garrison on the army were shooting at it with, with guns 
and a, a ship called the Wasp out in the bay was also shooting at it with its its guns, and uh, they were having wagers on who would destroy it quickest. And uh, the, I think the people on the ship won. And there's a, a lovely photograph out there of of them with their guns celebrating, destroying Governor O'Hara's legacy to the place. But he's still got a road named after him along along the rock. So I suppose that's something. I I, I would also point out that in the in the history of O'Hara's folly that it did get struck by lightning. And when you consider that they put a building on top of a huge rock that eventually might get hit by lightning, you, you kind of think, yeah, they probably should have foreseen that. So when they were actually shooting at it with the cannons from the boats, it had already been pretty much partially destroyed by the lightning. So just uh, just just more failure. More failure is just to underline that. And th- this was the period um, where they where Gibraltar... Gibraltar's always experienced sieges because... Basically, if you block off its short land border with Spain, it's completely helpless. Uh, but this was the period it endured its longest siege. It had a three-year and seven-month siege in 1780 as part of the as part of this war. And I think this is a good opportunity to bring up Gibraltar's most famous inhabitants, the the Barbary apes, as they're called, or, or more more accurately, the Barbary macaque, because they're they're not actually apes. Um, there's a, a famous story, probably a legend from this era, that during the siege, the Spanish troops were trying to mount a surprise attack before dawn on the on Gibraltar. And somebody woke up one of the macaques by mistake, and the, the they went crazy and made loads and loads of noise and woke each other up. And this roused the British garrison, who then were able to repel the, uh, the Spanish attack before they could get into position. And from that sprung up, I guess, a sort of a... a- a legend of the the monkeys as a rock, Joe. Yeah, yeah. So the, essentially, a myth was developed that while the 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 Barbary apes lived on the rock, the British would too. Uh, now, some of that was kind of a, an insult to the British, suggesting that they were like apes. Um, but it became this kind of folklore uh, that they were essential to British control of the rock to such an extent that when in World War Two, Winston Churchill got word that there were only seven macaques left on the rock he thought for morale purposes it was important to bolster their numbers and he, he in the middle of a very important war that he was pressing made sure that they were imported some macaques from north africa to bolster the population on the rock to ensure british dominance originally when i heard that uh, that legend uh, about uh, winston churchill being very concerned about the dwindling numbers of macaques uh, i didn't necessarily know he had imported them uh, I just heard that he was encouraging them to produce more, uh, which just brings up the image of Winston Churchill uh, halfway up a limestone rock, coercing two, uh, <laughs> two bored-looking macaques <laughs> to get romantic with each other, which I think is something we can, we can all enjoy. So you mentioned just World War II there, Joe. I guess uh, at that point, or by that point, the uh, rock of Gibraltar had become a very integral part of uh, the British I suppose the British Navy's control of the Mediterranean. Do you want to elaborate a little bit, Mark, on what kind of role the rock played in uh, World War II? Yes. So um, given that Gibraltar only has a land border with Spain and Spain were uh, technically, if not in spirit, uh, neutral in the war, there was no actual pressure on uh, potential capture of Gibraltar by the Germans or the Italians. So it served as a very, very useful uh, staging post for the British Navy and Army. Um, In order to have the freedom to be able to use it, uh, 
almost entirely as a, as a military base, they evacuated the civilian population, mainly to the United Kingdom. And this was a very, uh, a, a very huge event, I guess, in the history of, um, of the Gibraltarian people, because they, they had for a very long time regarded themselves as, as extremely British and defined themselves by their Britishness in uh, comparison to the Spanish who were their closest neighbor. And many of them started to realize as they lived amongst the British that perhaps they weren't quite as British as they had thought. They, they it challenged their uh, self-conception as being British because they didn't necessarily share all the customs and they spoke in a different way and their language was different and their food was different. Um, so I think uh, that was a, a formative time for the Gibraltarian people. And another, another thing which is very, very interesting is that towards the uh, end of the war, um, they, they had made a plan that if they were ever overrun, that what they would do is they would use the extensive network of caves in Gibraltar to essentially stash guerrilla forces, special forces, SAS and commandos and, and groups like that, uh, in order to fight a guerrilla war against the, the Germans or the Spanish or the Italians or whoever they thought might invade. Um, so they, they were going to use it to the to the bitter end if it came to that. And of course, these, these tunnels and caves have been extended through various sieges in the past. So they, they reckoned they could hold thousands of people in them. Mm. Uh, and the population of, of, of Gibraltar at this period, was the military population was about 6,000. So they, they had extensive plans to, to use it. And you mentioned, Mark, the evacuation of civilians at the start of the Second World War, the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, how many people was that? Uh, it was more than 10,000, approximately 13,000, 14,000 thereabouts. And all evacuated from Gibraltar? Yes, all the civilians. Wow. And so I, I suppose this brings us on to the, the idea of Gibraltar as a perhaps more self-determining place, because as, as Mark said, they, this was a, a pivotal moment in their self-identity questioning how British they necessarily were. And, weren't exactly uh, comfortable in Britain. Uh, yeah, uh, no, but definitely not Spanish. And this is an important part of everything to do with Gibraltar is, is they, they're definitely not Spanish. Um, like the UN post-World War II was very keen on small territories being decolonized. But here, here it was all about them discussing whether Spain could take control or whether it could be an independent territory. So the UN was very keen on Britain trying to remove itself, or at least investigating self-governance for for the territory. But a feature of post-war Gibraltar is that General Franco, when he was leader of Spain for many decades, he was a he was the fascist dictator of Spain. He blockaded Gibraltar, so the one land border they had couldn't be used for imports or exports of any supplies, which meant that everything had to come in by ship. And it also led to them building one of the most interesting airports in the world along the border, which is, of course, the widest part of the of the territory and the only part wide enough to accommodate a, a, an air a runway. Yeah, that's what we're going to speak about in our next part, uh, which will deal with the post-war history of uh, Gibraltar. So just join us after this quick break. This is Owen, reporting from Casement Square on a visit to Gibraltar. If you like this episode, please leave 80 Days a review on iTunes. So before the break, Joe mentioned that uh, Gibraltar has one of the most interesting airports in the world. Uh, 
it's definitely worth a Google image search. Uh, Mark, for those that might not be able to uh, pull up an image of it as we as are listening to us, do you want to describe what the airport is like? Yeah, so um, it it's very simple to describe if you've ever seen a level crossing for trains. So uh, two barriers coming down, blocking off road traffic. Uh, and then perpendicular, crossing through this, is the airstrip. Um, so the safety of this, I mean, I, I don't know if there's any, uh, I don't think there are any recorded uh, crashes in the history of the Gibraltar airport, but it, it, looks, it looks very precarious because there's just a bunch of cars waiting to run across the, the runway and there's a huge commercial liner uh, landing in between them. It's, uh, it, it looks very, very dicey indeed. And the road that intersects the runway is essentially the main road of Gibraltar. It is the, the main uh, traffic Which artery. Is Winston, Winston Churchill Road. With, yeah, the main road. They, they don't give that name to, uh, to a road just anywhere. That's, that's, that's the A1 road. So just to reiterate, I guess it's, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, you got a small peninsula bisected in the north uh, between itself and Spain. And uh, it's sort of along the border. The the, the runway w- runs parallel to the border. Isn't that right? Yeah, it, it, is, yes. it more or less is the border. And when a plane is landing, no one can enter or leave the territory, which is spectacular. So mentioning borders, Joe, uh, do you want to... Tell us a little bit about how Gibraltarians have self-determined over the years. Yeah, so obviously for anyone looking at it on a map, you look at Gibraltar and say, why isn't this Spain? And we've explained the history of, of um, the Treaty of Utrecht and so on and, and politically why it isn't Spain, but it doesn't seem like the people have any interest in being Spain either. And Franco probably didn't do any favours to that because he made it a, a belligerent place that was hard to get into. Uh, during his period of reign, Andalusia, the, the the province of Spain next to Gibraltar, is significantly poorer than Gibraltar, which is quite a wealthy region. Um, and we'll come to its economy later. But there have been a number of occasions where where the Gibraltarian people have been asked to determine their future and whether they want to be part of Spain or stay part of Britain. In 1967, kind of under pressure from the UN, the people were asked did they want to be Spanish or British. And the results of the referendum are hilarious in a in a free democracy. There was a turnout of I think ninety five percent, almost unheard of. Yes, and only a hundred and something people voted for Spain, and ninety nine point eight percent of the population voted to stay British. In a, one of the the most decisive referenda I think held anywhere on on an issue like this, um, and then after. Spain enters the EU later on. Uh, relations are freer and tra- uh, movement between the two territories is much freer. And many Sp- Spanish people may work in Gibraltar. Many Gibraltarians have homes in Spain. And in that terms, they're very mixed culturally and mixed socially. But again, in 2002, the Gibraltarian government held a referendum on this idea of shared sovereignty that the British and Spanish governments were discussing, that maybe they could come up to some they could come up with some kind of arrangement where Gibraltar would be partially Spanish and partially British. And again the turnout in that referendum very high and a very decisive ninety eight percent no vote to 
any kind of shared sovereignty solution. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in independence for Gibraltar. Being such a small territory, the idea that it would be able to maintain sovereignty is unrealistic. They don't really have a standing army or anything like that. They rely on the British for defence. But they um, they are definitely moving more and more towards self-determination. After the O2 referendum, their uh, governing council became a, named a parliament, still only 17 members. But um, it became more democratic and appointed representatives were removed from this parliament. So uh, I suppose a way you might put it is, a way you might define their Britishness is, is that they like the Queen and so on but they're not that pushed about the Westminster government determining what they do but they're also definitely not Spanish so it's a it's a stable region it's a very prosperous region and they seem happy with their current constitutional status so yeah a territory that's uh, quite economically prosperous is afforded the the protection of Britain by its uh, status as a British territory and you know, is is doing quite well for itself. Uh, we'll we'll get into the economy and the culture of Gibraltar just after this quick break. The ladies know me well. They're buying what I sell, but I never let them ask for any more. And I never put my toes in a door that might be closing. I try to use my winning ways, but when I know for certain the lady is a flirting, I tell her. Back in 30 days. That's why they call me the Rock of Gibraltar. That's why they say my heart is made of stone. So don't you try to lead me to the altar, because Gibraltar is standing alone. So we just mentioned how economically prosperous that Gibraltar is, uh, certainly in comparison to its its uh, big brother Spain. Mark, do you want to tell us something about sort of the main economies of Gibraltar and where its uh, financial wealth comes from? Yeah, so one of, the, one of the main areas is kind of a strange one. It's online gambling. Um, given that it's online, you kind of can't really put a pin in it to where it, it's based. But everything's based somewhere, uh, and I think that's on the internet is, is held in a server somewhere. Uh, and it just so happens that a lot of online gambling, gambling companies base themselves in Gibraltar. Part of that is down to the fact that uh, Gibraltar being a uh, British territory, it has some uh, legally favorable uh, ways to operate in the British market, and the British gambling market is, is very lucrative. Uh, but they also have uh, a certain amount of independence so they can uh, operate in other territories as well. The tunnels that we've talked about before, they're now apparently used to house many of the, the servers that are required to run these huge online gambling companies. And, and many of them, if, uh, I live in the UK, so I'm, I'm familiar with many of the company names, things like uh, Ladbrokes and William Hill, um, huge companies uh, traded in the stock market and so on. Um, but yeah, that, that's, a, that's an area that they get a lot of their income from. And also uh, associated to that are quite a lot of financial services are based in Gibraltar as well. Um, what would be termed in other, in other contexts, maybe offshore accounts. Yeah, Mark, this is clearly a very important part of Gibraltar's economy, uh, so much so that they actually have a minister for financial services and gaming, which I think must be the only country in the world with one of those. Uh, they also have a minister for traffic, which I think is wonderful, um, given how important 
the the road system is to keeping the country flowing. And but just one other economic feature of uh, Gibraltar is that they are implicated in a lot of smuggling, not the the state, but people. Uh, but they reckon fifty percent of smuggled cigarettes in Spain come through Gibraltar uh, at a cost of over seven hundred million to the Spanish economy. So this is another source of resentment of the Spanish government for Gibraltar that can be used as another kind of attack loophole, and not only for online services but also for real world um, taxable goods. So very much a, a sort of a grey economy in in Gibraltar, I guess you could say, like the both the tax haven status that it has or i guess had previously and then you've got the online gambling and now smuggling as well Mm -hmm. so we mentioned earlier about how gibraltar is very much a a melting pot of different uh cultures and people from different areas uh how has that affected the culture of this place joe well it's it's culture seems to be a mixed bag as well with food and drink from all around the mediterranean coast kind of appearing here, different foods you might find in Genoa and other other places. Uh, And the language that is spoken, while they largely speak English, there's also a a Creole or a a kind of a, what what I've seen described as Spanglish, uh, but it's called Llanito, which is also the name used in Spanish to describe the people from Gibraltar. And it's it's, um, a way of speaking that has code changing, where there'll be English words and Spanish words and occasional Genoese words mixed in. So it, it sounds alien to Spanish people as well as to English speakers. But it, it introduces words from, um, from, from as I said, Genoese, but also from Arabic because of the connections with Morocco. And interestingly, there are Hebrew words in, in Yanito because of the, the small Jewish population they've consistently had. And some of these Hebrew words aren't in, in, even in modern Hebrew. They're uh, perhaps biblical words that survived from the the Hebrew spoken by Spanish Jews in the past, which is no longer spoken because that Sephardi branch of Judaism is kind of largely gone. So it, it's a very interesting language or, or, or a Creole or whatever you want to call it, but uh, used interchangeably with English and, and seems to be like a home language. And then in public, you might use a more formal version of either English or Spanish. So it's it's uh, very interesting, and just to to comment that I mentioned there are, are Arabic words in Yanito as well, and this comes from the fact that there's always been commerce across the Straits of Gibraltar. Of course, yes, and particularly when Franco closed off the border with Spain, a lot of low-paid labour was done by people from North Africa instead, work that would have formerly been done by by um, people from southern Spain became done by people from northern Africa. So you had this influx of, of a Muslim population. It's not very large, but it's significant and has had an impact on the culture as well. And I guess in terms of uh, another aspect of Gibraltarian culture, football is, I suppose, obviously very popular there with, uh, with neighbouring Spain, uh, one of the most powerful footballing countries in Europe, and its relationship to Britain, which is obviously a very uh, very football intensive country as well but but of course they don't have a stadium they, because the country's so small there's no full-size soccer stadium yeah an interesting fact is that when gibraltar were trying to qualify for the european uh, 2016 football tournament about 10 percent of their entire population which is about three thousand people attended their match against germany that's a good turnout 
Yeah, and the entire population could have fit inside the stadium. But uh, unfortunately, Gibraltar lost 7-0 to Germany, which is a a fairly humiliating result. When the team play, they they usually play in Faro in Portugal because that's the nearest place, or that's the place they have an agreement with that has a sufficiently sized stadium. So um, the space requirements do make do make sports difficult. Football isn't the only sport uh, that the Gibraltarians are interested in. They also seem to have a very significant following of darts, which I guess comes from uh, their their English connections. Um, and also, I guess you would say related to that would be also shooting. I mean, both of those are, I think I think you've described in the past, Joe, as advanced pointing. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure these guys are committed uh, uh, Adonises and just like absolutely ripped and look fantastic and in great shape. Darts players especially, uh, I'm sure, are known for this. Um, but back to, to, back to the football just a little bit. Uh, they actually haven't been uh, accepted into UEFA for, for very long. Uh, I noticed, uh, I was reading through it, that they were, they were opposed in this by Spain as recently as 1999. Uh, so I guess it shows still how even today there's occasionally um, periodic freeze in their relationships across that, that tiny border that they have. It's something that they're, they're always aware of. And membership of, uh, membership of UEFA, for anybody who doesn't know, UEFA stands for the Union of European Football Associations, uh, is what granted them a national football team in May 2013. And uh, since they were granted that that honour, they have been beaten 7-0 by Germany, 4-0 by Croatia, 6-1 by Scotland, 4-0 by the Republic of Ireland, and by many, uh, Poland, Georgia, they, they, they have not won a football game yet, uh, unfortunately. Still trying. Yes. In their defence, they've got 30,000 people to choose from against nations with millions. So I mean, at, least, at least they're trying. Um, and just to come back to the idea of a mixture of cultures, the biggest musical act we could find in our research in Gibraltar is a, a band I'd never heard of called Breed 77, but I understand they're pretty famous. I think, Luke, you, you, you know about these this band from from your youth uh i do remember hearing them uh a couple of times on uh, a, a number of different playlists they're actually a, a mixture of uh, alternative metal and flamenco which is is a beautiful idea and uh, it's not it's it's not a common genre it betrays my questionable music choices as a, <laughs> as a young man but but it is it is marvelous music it, it's this really kind of soulful flamenco music with like big meaty electric guitars you know grinding along underneath it this is it's a very unique sound and i think very appropriate that this should be something that comes out of gibraltar which is a unique place joe i always appreciate meaty grinding you know that yes oh man 
Uh, I suppose the final point about Gibraltar in, in music is that it's featured as a kind of a watchword in lots of songs over the years uh, as a kind of a symbol of stability and solidity and unassailability because, of course, it withstood all these sieges and stood tall as a as a the key to the Mediterranean. And like famously, Ella Fitzgerald had that song, Solid as a Rock, uh, Our Love is as Solid as a Rock of Gibraltar, which, you know, is, is a... A kind of a romantic song about getting married and in fact a famous musician did get married there J- John Lennon and Yoko Ono were married in Gibraltar in a brief ceremony uh, about 15 minutes long and uh, it's kind of one of Gibraltar's little unusual claims to fame that again because of its slightly unusual legal system it was a place they were able to get married at short notice without uh, Ono being a, a citizen and so that's where they got married and it became kind of somewhat famous among Beatles fanatics for that. Uh, but they didn't stay very whether long, or not they chose it for its... No, they, they were gone within the hour to uh, their honeymoon. So it's unlikely they chose it for its symbolism as a, as a sign of solidity and more likely they chose it because it was... Uh, a legal grey area. Bureaucratically straightforward. Yes. But still, it it um it seems that Gibraltar has a bit of a wedding industry as a result of this, which is another little unique detail. So that's Gibraltar, a very eclectic and uh, interesting mix of different cultures, uh, different backgrounds, people from different areas, with a lot of, I think we can agree, very interesting uh, history and a lot of uh, quirky stories associated with it. Yeah, I think it's unique location and unique appearance have made it have a much larger role in world history than are merited by seven square kilometers and so it makes a really interesting prism to look at world history and and culture through so i've definitely enjoyed getting to know the place yes i agree actually when 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 you mentioned i I endorse uh, this yeah, I endorse this message. I endorse this product. When you mentioned this product or service, when you mentioned that the uh, U.S. War of Independence, that that's why the the siege had occurred, I assumed you were out of your mind and you were thinking about some other some other battle or some other territory. But yeah, it it, it seems to attract these massive world conflicts and uh, uh, for for such a tiny tiny position actually serve as a staging post for these these hugely influential uh, actions actions and world macro politics so yeah you can find more about this podcast on uh, 80dayspodcast.com uh, or you can find us on twitter or facebook under 80 days podcast uh, we would encourage you if you've liked what you've heard uh, or indeed if you haven't liked what you've heard or if you have any corrections to uh, go to itunes and leave us a review or email us on 80dayspodcast.gmail.com uh, Mark, where can people find more about you on the internet? Uh, I'm at MarkBoyle86 on Twitter. And uh, also my blog, The Toner of Leak, uh, is on WordPress. And Joe? And people can find me on Twitter at uh, on Burnock, A-N-B-E-I-R-N-E-A-C-H. Uh, you can find more about me at uh, my website, uh, LukeJKelly.com, or on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.